so that we get a bit of a feel for the back and forth that's going on between God and, and Habakkuk. Uh, we're going to be particularly looking at verses 12 to 17, so let's pray together and ask for God's help as we do that. Uh, Father, often in this life, in this broken and fallen world, we are distressed, confused by what we see around us, by what we experience in our own lives. We struggle to understand your ways, which so often are mysterious and strange to us. But we pray now that as we come to your word, as you speak to us, please would you meet with us by your spirit. Please would you remind us of who you are and help us to trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When was the last time you asked God, why? I asked you the same question last Sunday. I wonder if you've asked God that question since last Sunday. I have. Uh, just this week, I've asked God, why, Lord, are rich, powerful people allowed to exploit others? Why, Lord, are people forced to flee their own countries, risking their lives to give their children a safe place to live? Why, Lord, are your people persecuted and killed just because they follow Jesus? Why, Lord, have you still not answered my prayers for my family? It's a question that is one of the most instinctive cries of the human heart, isn't it? It's a question that we all find ourselves asking. And my guess is that even if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you believe in God, my guess is you probably have asked that question at some point. Perhaps even to the God that you don't think you believe in. I guess lots of people think that this is a particular conundrum for Christians. You know, how can you believe in a God who's good and powerful with all this suffering? But it's not just Christians who have to wrestle with that problem. All of us live in the same world, filled with darkness and evil and suffering. It's a problem for every single one of us to deal with that. Now, we're going to be thinking particularly, how does a, a Christian faithfully respond to that question? But I just do want to point out, before we, we get to that, how unsatisfactory the atheist response is. To, to simply say, like someone like Richard Dawkins or Stephen Fry does, this is just the way the world is. Survival of the fittest team. There is no meaning or no purpose, and there is certainly no hope in your suffering. That might be clean. It is pretty clean cut, isn't it? But I don't think any of us, especially in our honest moments, can actually live like that. We know something is wrong with this world, objectively wrong. And we instinctively want to direct our questions to someone, to anyone who might listen, who could do something about it. And that's what Habakkuk does in this opening chapter. Four times in chapter one, Habakkuk asks God, he cries out, why, 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 why? Habakkuk is on a journey from why to worship. 
But that journey is not smooth and it is not straightforward. It begins with his deep, anguished struggle to understand God's actions in this broken and confusing world. Habakkuk lived in a time when the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah was ruled over by King Jehoiakim. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. His reign was marked by corruption, injustice, violence, exploitation, and wrongdoing. And we saw in verses 2 to 4 last Sunday, Habakkuk's particular struggle was with God's apparent inaction and indifference to those problems. He cries out to God, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? That's Habakkuk's question. God, why aren't you doing something? And what Habakkuk is showing us, he's showing us a faithful response for when we find ourselves in similar situations, we bring those questions to God. But the problem, as Habakkuk discovered, is very often God's answers do not make sense. God replies in verses 5 to 11 by telling him, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come in judgment. The Babylonian invasion, it's God's instrument to execute divine justice against his own people. But now, the problem is not so much with what God isn't doing, but what he is. Because in Habakkuk's mind, the cure is worse than the disease. And now he is even more confused, even more perplexed. He has even more questions than before. And he cries out to God again in verse 13, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In verse 13, it's as if Habakkuk is saying to God, You're doing what? I I don't understand. How can that be okay with you? And I I want us to to focus on on that second part of Habakkuk's lament. And I particularly want us to think about where should those questions take us? When God's answers don't make sense, when you have more confusion and questions than answers, what impact should that have on your relationship with God? Or maybe, to ask it the other way around, what impact should our relationship with God have on our questions? Habakkuk shows us, in his continued confusion, still more questions and answers, he shows us two things. Here's the first. Hold on to what you know about God. Verse 12 and 13, hold on to what you know about God. This section from verse 12 to 17, it continues and concludes Habakkuk's lament. It's a lament which is born out of attention. Attention between what he knows about God and what God is doing. And he cannot fit the two together. 
But at no point does Habakkuk start to question God's character. Instead, he holds on to what he knows about God. He puts the things that he doesn't know in the context of the things that he does know. That's what faithful questioners do. Hold on to what you know about God. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever been camping and had to put up your tent when it's blowing a gale and pouring with rain. Some of you, those bad memories are coming back to you of having to do that. And when I did my gold, Duke of Edinburgh, part of my service was to help a group of year nine girls in my school who were doing their bronze expedition. And when we arrived at base camp the day before they set off their expedition, the ground was hard. It was the summer. It hadn't been raining much. The ground was hard. But it was driving wind and torrential rain when we got there. And it was forecast to get worse through the night. So as we were all putting our tents up, I went over to the group of girls putting up their tent, and I said to them, you need to go and find some really long stakes and get a mallet and make sure you hammer them into ground, five of them, four corners and your entrance porch. Make sure they are as deep in the ground as it will go. I remember telling them, I know you're hungry. I know it's raining. I know you want your dinner. But really, do this now, because if it comes up in the middle of the night, you ain't going to want to do it then. It was raining. They were soggy. They were 14. And so they just casually slipped a few pegs into ground and went off to the canteen to get their dinner. Needless to say, at some point in the middle of the night, there was a group of panicky, screaming teenage girls outside my tent. Because their tent was blowing away in the wind. And I, I admit to you, in that moment, I did not serve them as I was there to do. <laughs> I just shrugged my shoulders, zipped on my tent, and went back to sleep. Habakkuk does not make the same mistake as my bronze group of teenage girls. In Habakkuk's world, it is, metaphorically speaking, dark, wet, and windy. But he is not blown away by the wind. He remains faithful. Troubled, yes. Confused, yes. Questioning, yes. But faithful. Because he's put five stakes deep into the ground to anchor him securely. Five things that he knows about God. The first is that God is the faithful covenant God. But whenever you see, like in verse 12, the word Lord spelt in all capital letters like that, it's translating God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. And by using God's covenant name like that, Habakkuk is recalling God's central covenant commitment, his commitment to say, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's why Habakkuk says, my God, my Holy One. He's not making a statement about private ownership, but, pub, but personal relationship. God has entered into a personal covenant relationship where he commits himself to his people, where he commits himself to promises. A covenant that he will not, indeed cannot, break. And Habakkuk holds on to that. God is the faithful covenant God. And secondly, he's the everlasting God. Verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting? The, the Babylonian Empire, it only lasted about 70 years or so. That's a long time for us. But it's not a long time in the scale of history. And compared to the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, it's nothing. 
The God who stands above the turbulent ebb and flow of history. The God who sees the beginning from the end. See, we, we know that we're living towards the end of the story that God is writing. If world history is a five-act play, we are in Act 5. But we don't know how many scenes there are in Act 5. We don't know how long those scenes are going to last, but God does. He knows where the story is going. The everlasting God sees the end from the beginning, and that calls for some humility on our part. Because our perspective is so limited, isn't it? And sometimes, recently in our house, Lydia has started to offer us advice on how to run our lives. And she sometimes finishes that by saying, I am nearly four, you know. (laughs) To be honest, given that the age gap between us is only 30 years, I probably do have a thing or two to learn from her. But not from the God who's everlasting. He's the eternal one, the everlasting God. And thirdly, he's the holy God. Verse 12 and 13, my holy one, your eyes are too pure to lock on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. It's God's nature to stand against all that is wrong and wicked in our world. He does not look on evil with approval. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. He is the holy God. And fourthly, he's the unchanging God. Verse 12, my rock. He's someone on whom we can build our lives confidently and securely. God is not whimsical, changing his moods with the wind. He is rock solid, absolutely dependable. Because he does not change. And lastly, God is the sovereign God. Verse 12, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Babylon rising up to crush and conquer Judah is not a random event in an out-of-control world. It's planned, ordained by God. He is totally sovereign over the nations. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. Nothing ever happens outside his control. In his sovereign power, he is even able to use wicked and evil intentions of human beings to bring about his own good purposes. Think about what Joseph in the Old Testament says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Hold on to what you know about God. Warren Wiersbe once said, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. Hold on to what you know about God so that even when it is dark, when it is wet and windy, you can say with confidence, you're the faithful covenant God, the everlasting God, my holy one, my rock, the sovereign God over all things, and you have not changed. It's deep confidence in who God is. But I want you to see that it is that confidence in who God is that is the very source of Habakkuk's confusion. Because what he knows about God does not fit with what he sees. It looks as though God has given up on his people and his promises, just left them to be destroyed. It looks as though the Holy One does tolerate evil and wickedness. 
Uh, again, at no point does Habakkuk question God's character, but he cries out in confusion because he cannot understand how those two things fit together. He says to God, I know you. I know what you're like. So how can you do this? And that's the second thing Habakkuk shows us about a faithful response. When God's ways don't make sense, when his providence is mysterious, hold on to what you know. And secondly, keep on bringing your questions to God. Keep on bringing your questions to God. In the the second part of it, as I said, the problem is not so much what God isn't doing, but what he is. In Habakkuk's mind, raising up the Babylonians is not solving the problem. It's only making things worse, multiplying the violence, the oppression, and the injustice. It does not make sense. Now, even the innocent people in Judah are going to be swept up in this Babylonian onslaught. The cure is worse than the disease. And make no mistake, the Babylonian invasion was absolutely brutal. Habakkuk uses this extended fishing metaphor to describe them. To the Babylonians, precious human lives are just another fish caught with a hook in the net. They go to war like people go fishing. It's just sport to them. They bring back a huge haul of slaves and prisoners and they celebrate it with gladness. It's a horrible picture if you think about it. We catch fish in order to eat them. And in the same way, the Babylonians go to war to devour nations. But it's also an appropriate picture. When the Babylonians invaded, they would slaughter most of the people destroy the buildings, burn them to the ground. And then they would round up the cleverest, the brightest, the best of the rest. And then they would put hooks through their mouths. Some of them, they would gouge out their eyes. The rest of them, they would chain together and march them off defeated and humiliated as slaves to exile in Babylon. It's cruel, barbaric, And they loved it. It enabled them to live lives of luxury and opulence, a society built on the back of imperialist exploitation and slave labor. And here's the thing. God knows what they're like. That description that we read last week in verses 5 to 11, it's God's description. He isn't surprised by their brutality. He knows exactly what they're like. And what's worse... God is the one behind it. Who is it that's made Judah like one big fishing lake for Babylon? Verse 14, it is you, God. You have made them like the fish in the sea. That that is deeply unsettling, isn't it? It should be. It raises a big question Hang on, God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? 
Habakkuk is bewildered and perplexed, not because he doesn't think judgment is required, but because he cannot see how all this violence and injustice can further a righteous God's good purposes. How can a holy good God be okay with, with using a people like this? And so he cries out to God, how can this be okay with you? How can you let this happen? How can you let them get away with that? How, how long is this going to go on for? Verse 17, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Is this merciless killing going to go on forever? Those questions reflect a deep confusion. But I want you to notice, again as we did last week, that even at this point, at his most confused, he goes to God. Still keeps going back to God. If this were me, I'd have long given up praying by this point. That's my response when things get tough. I just withdraw from God. I keep my distance because it's hard to keep coming back, isn't it? To keep praying when you feel like your prayers aren't being heard. To keep reading the Bible when you feel like God isn't speaking to you. It's hard to keep coming back to God when his answers seem only to make things worse. But Habakkuk shows us those are the moments where we need to press more deeply into God, not less. To ask him with courage and honesty, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? Even now, Habakkuk still does not turn away from God or gossip about God. He does not give in to cynicism or indifference still. God is the one to go to for answers. Like we saw last Sunday, there is a world of difference between complaining about God and complaining to God. Saying about God, he's abandoned me. And saying to God, you have abandoned me. Jesus shows us you can say that to God and still be faithful so long as you direct it to him. And so in our own situations, confused and perplexed by lots of things, maybe a, a long-term health condition or the heartache of struggling to conceive or the isolation of unemployment or just the unanswered prayers, maybe the tragic loss of a spouse or a parent or even a child, keep bringing your questions to God. But as we move to a close, here's what I want you to notice. Habakkuk does not get an answer. Habakkuk does not get an answer, at least not yet. He, he's sure an answer is coming. He's sure that God has more to say, and he does. That's why there's two more chapters. And so Habakkuk says, I'm, I'm going up to the city tower, like climbing the tower of Liverpool Cathedral. I'm going to go up there to look for God's answer, to watch and wait to see what else he's going to say. But the answer does not come straight away. Now look, I know that we know how this ends, especially if you're in a gospel community and you read all the way through last Wednesday. We know how this ends. We know Habakkuk's going to get an answer. We know it's an answer that's going to move him from why to worship. But it takes time to get there. And we are not there yet. So let's not rush ahead too quickly. This little book, it's not just about the destination. 
Habakkuk is not only about the end of chapter 3. The journey matters too. And like Habakkuk, we need to learn to wait, to inhabit the tension without the answers. So let's sit with Habakkuk for a while. Confused and perplexed and bewildered with more questions than answers. But trusting God enough to take our confusion and our questions to him. While you wait, keep on bringing your questions to God. And while you wait, hold on to what you do know. In this life with the violence of the world around us, the personal tragedies and struggles in our own life, with so much that seems to contradict our understanding of God's character, there is a lot that we don't know. But we do know Jesus. Hold on to what Jesus is like when he walks on our planet full of compassion and care for those who are hurting and suffering. Jesus is the faithful covenant Lord. His life, death and resurrection proves beyond all doubt God is utterly committed to his people and to his promises. Hold on to what Jesus is like as he enters our world as one of us to suffer injustice and violence at the hands of those he made. God is not indifferent to your suffering. He knows what it's like. Hold on to what Jesus suffered for us as he was led out of the city in exile. Not with a hook in his face, but a cross on his back. To have nails pierced through his hands. Hold on to what Jesus says as he cries out with us and for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hold on to what Jesus is like as he loves you so much he gave up his life to death on the cross for you. There is a lot we don't know. But we do know Jesus. Hold on to him. And know that one day, the confusions and the contradictions will make sense. One day, in some mysterious way that is hard to explain, God will make sure that everything is more wonderful for once having been so sad. Let's pray.